Special thanks to our newest sponsor. Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. We are producing almost all the CO2 that we need. One day I walked through the production area and realized that that hose that was bubbling into those buckets of water was literally bubbling CO2 into the atmosphere. (laughs) And I thought, oh my gosh, Finley would never approve of that. So I thought we have to do this. This week on the show, the story of how a brewery that punches above its weight in the sustainability department recaptures CO2 at a former top secret military listening post. Hi, I'm Julie Broadus, and I'm the owner of Old Busthead Brewing Company. We're in Vintel, Virginia, just outside of Warrenton, Virginia. I'm uh, Mike Sutherland, the brewmaster here at Old Busthead Brewing. This is a story about CO2 recapture, but it begins with a brewery that, how should I say, has prioritized sustainability much higher than most other breweries of its size. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your brewery and where that dedication to sustainability comes from. Yes. So both my husband and I um, grew up caring about the planet and the environment. Um, He... I always say grew up in a family of precocious environmentalists. I remember my first Christmas at his house and his sister had, this was in the eighties, had used um, newspaper to wrap the Christmas presents with no tape. And um, so they've just always really been concerned about conservation. Um, And in my case, I had a father who was a real adventurer and spent a lot of time. um, We had a small 
uh, plane and spent a lot of time traveling to very remote natural places, landing on dirt runways and putting life jackets on when we went in the plane um, to get to these super remote places and just really got immersed in nature. And I think that really helped me value the environment. So when we started Old Busthead, we were already thinking about the environment. We started by, um, first of all, buying a building that already existed. So um, if there's starting with a building that's already there is way greener than building from scratch. So what was that building? Um, what was there previously? So we, um, Vint Hill, uh, in, in near, near Warrington, outside of Warrington, there was a military base. It was a top secret military listening post. And it was, I like to say it was in a very discreet location. So it was not a place you would expect a military base. It was in very rural Fauquier County. Um, and it was meant to be not seen. And um, starting in the 1940s, or starting World War II, um, they created this as signal station number one. So it was the first listening post where they started intercepting radio signals. Um, they had a really big intercept um, that basically laid out all of the positions of the German forces um, on the Normandy beaches and changed the course of D-Day. So um, some really important things happened here. Um, it remained open through the Cold War and the Korean War um, and uh, just closed. It was a BRAC closure in the 1990s. So what happened was um, originally it was a beautiful old farm in Fauquier County. There's lovely slate roof barns, a manor house. And uh, in 1942, I think it was, the military came in, bought up the farm, set up the listening post in the barns and in the house, put large um, radio towers all around and fenced the whole thing and started doing these intercepts. So it's this very strange property. It has beautiful slate roof barns. And then from there through the 90s, the military just added building after building, warehouse after warehouse, connected on, you know, from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, building slapped onto other ones. So kind of Gomer Pyle looking. It's very much a campus. Um, and when it was closed, it was a property that nobody knew what to do with. It's in a rural discrete location. Um, and we were afraid for the really awesome historic buildings that are here that were vacant, getting run down, but had a lot of history and a lot of character. And my, my deep belief is that places with a sense of place have to be really valued and protected because they make life better. So we were excited about, you know, revealing some of the character and beauty of this old warehouse that had been hidden. Um, and because we were so concerned with the environment, the first thing we did was put in um, 18 500 foot deep geothermal wells in our parking lot. So we knew geothermal was the most environmentally friendly, the best thing you could do um, to conserve energy. That, that sounds like a pretty big undertaking. What did, what did that cost? What did it do for you? So, um, it, our initial investment was, this was 10 years ago, was $400,000. 
if we would have spent on a regular heat pump system at the time, we would have spent $200,000. So it costs us an extra $200,000. It's a 60 ton geothermal system. And um, you're the the tons that you need depends greatly on your uses in the building. So offices use way fewer tons than taproom use. So assembly use requires a lot of air conditioning. Um, so we um, had that, I guess you would say, extra $200,000 investment. And we calculate now that we are saving about $20,000 a year. So that's a 10% annual return. So the tricky thing is you can't actually, since there was no, no, nothing to compare it to, we have to just kind of estimate, you know, knowing what um, heat pumps cost. Like we have some other buildings that we've also bought in Vent Hill, you know, kind of comparing to others. Um, But we do believe we have about a 10% annual return on the geothermal system. And you've also got a massive solar array there too, right? Yeah. So um, this is really where we get into what inspired us to go the extra mile. So um, when we, you know, I mentioned that we bought this old building, we're renovating it. We put in the geothermal system and um, our contractor had told us for probably the fourth time that we were six weeks away from opening our tap room. Um, It's it's Christmas of 2013, and we think we're going to brew our first beer in the production area, which was farther ahead um, the next month. And our daughter got really sick, and we had to take her to the hospital. And this is our 18-year-old daughter. Actually, she was 17 at the time, um, Finley. And um, we learned that she had a rare liver cancer. And um, was going to have to have a liver transplant um, to try and, you know, that was her best hope um, for stopping the cancer. And so Finley and I just up and moved to Johns Hopkins Hospital. And um, it's hard to tell anybody about Finley in short order um, because she was truly a a remarkable person. Um, she, um, She was 17. Um, she spent those 17 years literally leaping um, with joy for life um, and in her own particular exuberant way. And somehow at the same time, carrying on this incredibly serious mission to get everyone she knew to care about the environment and to care about the planet. She was very concerned about climate change. And this is back 10 years ago when a lot of people would not say the word climate change. Um, she watched a ton of TED Talks. She read everything she could. Um, and she just was really concerned about it. So there's this lighthearted, jubilant person who has this serious mission that she carries on with a smile. And so when she got to the hospital, um, that didn't change. She um, she told all the nurses, no, don't bring me another plastic cup. Just use the same plastic cup, you know, from my pills each day. And she didn't. It wouldn't let them bring styrofoam and, you know, talk to them about recycling. And when she walked around the hall um, of her floor, she would stop at every room and turn out the lights as she passed the room if there wasn't somebody in the room. And um, so, you know, she really inspired a lot of the nurses there. And then she also had a friend who had had cancer 
um, in her high school. And her friend said, oh my gosh, Finley, you're going to get so many flowers and stuffed animals. And Finley said, no, I don't want flowers. They're grown in South America. They use chemicals and then they put them on an airplane and they ship them all the way up here. And that's such a waste of, of, you know, carbon. And I don't want flowers and I don't need stuffed animals. I don't need more stuff. Just tell people to plant a tree. So we got the word out. You know, of course, there were a lot of people who really loved Finley um, and the whole community kind of got behind her. They were, uh, she was in a, um, everyone in her school, you know, she was, she really stood out in her school as a very special person. And so the whole school um, really got behind her and the word just got spread far and wide and everyone started planting trees. And then they would send her a picture of the tree and um, tell us where it was. So um, we had trees planted all over the globe. Um, we called it Finley's Forest. And there were trees planted on every continent except for Antarctica. So it was, you know, really, it was a thing that just really grew. And, um, but my sister-in-law, the one who used, um, she, when, when I first met her, she used the, the newspaper instead of wrapping paper. She was a very, um, she was really into conservation um, and worked in that world. And she said, Finley, you should start a fund because people want to do more. And that way you can do what you want to do for the planet and channel like this love that people have for you into the thing that you really care about the most. So uh, let's see, she, we entered the hospital in December and it was about February when she decided that she was going to start this fund called Finley's Green Leap Forward Fund. And um, she chose the name because she wanted it to be green and she wanted a big change. So she wanted it to be a leap and she wanted it to be a leap forward. So, so that's how she got the name. And we later discovered that we have like 50 pictures of Finley leaping in the air because that's just the kind of person she was. <laughs> um, so, um, so at any rate, that was the name of her fund and her birthday was March 12th which was um, about three, two and a half to three weeks from the date she started the fund. And um, all the family out there was getting the word out and their goal was to have $18,000 in the fund to present to her on her 18th birthday. And by her 18th birthday, March 12th, which was two and a half weeks later, they had over $67,000 in the fund from over 400 and some odd donors. and. Wow. Um, yeah, so um, Finley started researching where she was going to make her first two grants, and um, she chose the Kakapin Institute in West Virginia that plant trees along waterways, and she chose the um, Greenbelt Movement in Kenya because she wanted to feel like she was doing something big, um, where they're also planting trees. And so by Earth Day, when she made those first two grants, there was over $100,000 in the fund. And, um, and then Finley passed away, um, about a month later on June 2nd. And, um, since that time, you know, she continues to inspire us and her fund continues to grow. And she, um, you know, she is what has taken something that was a concern for the environment into an, uh, a, like a life's mission and a passion and a an absolute you know 
dedication to making sure we're doing everything that we can for the environment. It just stepped the whole thing up a level. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really is what we're all about in everything we do every day. And uh, Finley's Fund on Earth Day will be over a half a million dollars in donations to environmental organizations. Wow. So we make a grant every Earth Day. Yeah. We can certainly see where the passion comes from. <laughs> yeah. So that's a long, a long story. That's not all, that's not very much about beer, but, um, but it is about, you know, where our passion came from. And we do a 5k every year at the brewery to help raise funds and then one other fundraiser. And then it, we just continued, you know, to tell her story and to inspire people to do better. That's awesome. Speaking of inspiration, why don't you talk about this next project that we're, we're discussing here? So, um, somebody at the brewery, I'm not sure who, was inspired to take a look at CO2. So, right. Um, well, actually, talk about I'm gonna, that. And, yeah. I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually answer the question that you asked me the first time before I went into that long story. Um, that is what inspired us to do the 100 kilowatt solar array. Okay. So, we committed that we were going to set aside some money, amount of money every year because it's something that we would do on Finley's behalf. And um, so we saved up and um, I think it was three years ago, maybe four years ago now, we put in a 100 kilowatt solar rate and that was our first like Finley project. Um, And it's one of the, it's the largest in um, for a microbrewery in our probably five state area. And if you counted all the microbreweries, not the brew pubs, but all the microbreweries across the country, it'd be the fourth largest. And it um, produces um, 30% of all the electricity that we use in our brew house. So cool. that was a great investment. But okay, now, now to answer your actual question. <laughs> so, um, so our, currently we have a, a second brewmaster who runs our small batch system. Um, and he um, he came, he watched a webinar on um, I think it was Master Brewers Association webinar put on by Earthly Labs, and it was about CO two recapture. And when he saw it, he came in and he said, "I just learned that you know the big breweries have been recapturing CO two for a long time because it just financially makes sense, right?" It's a product that we use and a ton, and it's a project, a product that we generate a ton. So, um, but there hasn't really been a good system for breweries of our size. Um, we're we're around five to six thousand um, dollar barrels a year at this point um, to to be able to capture CO two. But this webinar that he watched from Earthly Labs um, was introducing a system that would work for a brewery of our size. And he said, I knew you would be interested. And um, so um, I told you when we first started the brewery, I was new to brewing. And I now like love it. I'm so, it's it's something that I've just 100%, I'm so glad this is the way we decided to teach the community about the environment because it, it's so amazing. But at the time, I didn't really know. And so one day I walked through the production area and no- realized that that hose that was bubbling into those buckets of water was literally bubbling CO2 into the atmosphere. <laughs> and right. I thought, 
Oh my gosh. Finley would never, um, never approve of that. (laughs) And so, um, and it's not a small amount of CO2. So, how much is it? Can you can you walk us through sort of like give us some like you know rough numbers of of yeah what it what it looked like? Yeah, so at about five thousand barrels um, a year, we were bubbling about eighteen thousand pounds of CO two, which is one point eight seven metric tons of CO two into the atmosphere um, that could have been captured for reuse, and um, that's about the same as like nine thousand pounds of coal burned. Or another one I like to use is almost 10 acres of forest um, a year. You know, the equivalent of the carbon that's sequestered by about a 10-acre parcel of forest. So, it's, it's a lot of CO2. And um, so, um, so, I thought we have to do this. And um, we talked about it in our meeting and we looked at the numbers and decided, unlike the geothermal and the CO2, which we knew would be a great return. We said, this one, we don't really know. It (laughs) could be a break even. Uh, It could turn out to be good. But this is part of that commitment, um, you know, to Finley is like, we're willing to be on that bleeding edge while we are figuring that out because it'll help other companies be able to do the same thing and help other people capture CO2 and get it out of the atmosphere. And so, um, so we went for it. Coming up. We are producing almost all the CO2 that we need. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Today's podcast is sponsored by BSG. When planning your next brewing journey, consider traveling domestically with your malt choice. As distributors of quality domestic malts like Rar and Gambrinus, BSG gives you the freedom to explore a world of flavors, but at local prices. So you can cut costs, but not quality. Start exploring at bsgcraftbrewing.com. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their Extreme Flex Beverage Transfer Hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy, clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. 
Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. Planning to attend CBC in Nashville? Pay me a visit at the Lupulin Exchange. We're booth number 744. I'd love to meet you, and I'll be giving away some awesome free t-shirts while supplies last. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Midwest is holding their spring meeting at Nine Giant Fermatorium in Cincinnati, April 29th. The District Carolina Spring Social is April 29th at Beer Study Durham. District Georgia presents an evening with Halfway Crooks and Dingaman's Malt, May 2nd in Atlanta. District Philadelphia's spring meeting will be at Tonewood Brewing in Barrington, New Jersey, May 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets June 1st at Holidayly Brewing in Golden, Colorado. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. District Michigan's Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day raw materials symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids, October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Back to the show. Recovering CO2 isn't as simple as it maybe sounds at first. It's complicated. It's got to be cleaned. You have to be able to store it. And we'll, we'll get into how all that works in a bit. But why don't you give us sort of your your initial back the napkin math that you you use for that 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 expected cost and ROI where, where mm-hmm. you, you said, Hey, this, this may or may not be worth it. Give us, um, you know, okay. give us what you thought you were getting into. Yeah. So we, um, the unit itself, um, at the time was $95,000 and, um, there was a 20% tax credit that we were pretty sure we could get. And actually we've applied and we're just waiting for our DEQ checkmark. Um, to get that funds, those funds back. So that would be another, that was 20% of the cost. So almost $20,000. So our net investment, once we get that money back, which we're confident we will, is $75,500. Okay. And um, currently, you know, before CC, we were spending about $435 a month um, on commercial CO2. And um, so we are capturing 
about 1,500 pounds of CO2 right now. And we're not at our highest level of production right now. Um, so, you know, we're still recovering somewhat from, from um, COVID. But um, at this That's point... per month, the 1,500 pounds? Yeah, per month. So if we get 1,500 pounds and with the amount that we're paying for our CO2, we're saving about $5,220 a year. So that at that level, it's about a 7% annual return. Um, which isn't bad. Um, but in fact, you know, like if you could put your money in the bank and make 7% on it, you'd be pretty happy. Um, but the good, the even better side of this is that we have not gotten close to CC's max capacity. So CC's max capacity, our unit, is about 1,680 pounds a week. So the capacity to capture more CO2 is absolutely there. And with the growth that we're um, planning for in our sales and in our production, we're estimating that we're going to be able to hit, we hope to hit anywhere from an 11 to an 18% annual return on this unit. We have the capacity to hit that, which is a, a, you know, a phenomenal return. And then there's other benefits as well. So. Um, you know, we mentioned that our, our legacy system is a commercial, we buy commercial CO2, like many, many people do. And that, that quality can be fine. Um, but at times, the, the impurities of the commercial CO2 can vary. So you don't always know the quality. And you also don't always know if it's going to be available. So like some people across the country had real troubles with the availability of CO2. So we are producing almost all the CO2 that we need. And there's only a few things that we need to rely on our, our legacy system for. And um, so, so that really helps with our um, resiliency. But then on the quality side, the CC unit scrubs the CO2 for consumption. So because of the extra filters that we have, um, carbon filters and Mike can speak more to that sort of thing. The CO2 is, is, a, is a consistent, pure quality. Um, when we first looked into the unit, we went to Denver Beer Company and checked out their unit. Um, and because we, we were at the convention and happened to be right there. So um, they were really happy with the unit. And the CO2 was of such high quality that they were actually selling it to cannabis growers rather than using it themselves because they got so much money for this high quality CO2. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of speak to the CO2 quality, we uh, kind of as a follow-up to a question we had at the NBA um, meeting at the ETC, um, we actually ran sensory on it last week and actually did a side-by-side -side of our industrial versus our um, recaptured CO2. And there is a notable difference and you actually get more of a, um, like we were able to pick up in our industrial CO2 or, you know, the CO2 that's delivered by our supplier um, slight changes, almost like a tinny or metallic flavor in the water we were tasting with that versus the uh off the cc unit the recaptured co2 had more of a fermentation character to it almost so like it was definitely more 
in line with what you would be used to tasting in more of a in like a spunded um, fermentation or um, something like that where you're naturally carbonating. So it definitely does have a more more beer flavor. Like it, it definitely lends itself to product a lot better than the industrial does. I missed that tasting, Mike. You're going to have to do that again. <laughs> yeah, you were you were out did, of town. Did you use, did you use the, the the Dave Thomas method that we talked about on episode 186? Uh, yeah, bubbling it. We bubbled it through the water. Yeah, cool. so we we hooked that all up, and it was uh, it was good. Awesome. I was glad that uh, that Ben mentioned that because I was I wasn't sure how to how to. How to go about it? At yeah, first. I, I smacked him and gave him a hard time afterwards for not mentioning the the episode because we talked about it on there. And I think I think there's links in that episode to the methods as well, if I recall. Um, okay, I got a couple questions for you guys. So, uh, number one, um, you guys have said CC a bunch of times, and we haven't explained what that means. So, I, I want to figure out what the heck CC means. And the other question <laughs> is, uh, you already said that you're about a five thousand barrel brewery, but we didn't really talk about the batch size. I think that would be helpful mm-hmm. to put that in perspective for folks too. So, why don't you give okay. us answers to those two questions? Sure. Um, we have a thirty barrel brew house, and I'll start, Mike, and then you can you can interrupt and f- and fix anything I say wrong. Thirty barrel brew house. We have two 120 barrel fermenters and eight 60 barrel fermenters and two 90 barrel fermenters and um like a 120 bright tank i think and a 90 bright tank and a 60 is that right mike yeah it's uh two 120s eight 60s three 90s a 120 bright 60 bright and 90 bright correct okay okay all right so what's cc what is that uh that's just what they call that's just the name they use uh that earthly labs used for the unit um i don't believe it explicitly stands for anything i just looked at their website <laughs> and then <it> <laughs> to double check that but i think we asked that uh, question when we were w- talking with them they were they were great they were really um and have been great really responsive i think we asked that question and i think they gave us an answer but it wasn't one that like really stuck it was kind of like yeah it's kind of our affectionate name for the, the the main unit it's cc you know okay fair enough all right so um let's get into the nitty-gritty of how this system works um so what's the first step in this process it's pretty similar to when you're setting up your tank for fermentation but rather than using a standard blowdown bucket as your um for your pressure relief from fermentation you're using this uh they provide you with these foam traps um so it's a big 55 gallon stainless steel drum that has been ported almost similar to like a a yeast brank that you would get um and it has one port on the top that goes down into the water and then one port in the head that is access to the headspace, and so as the co2 is bubbling through the water it's that's your first line of defense for the cc so that way if any if there is any overflow during high croissant or anything like that it's captured in that foam trap um and so rather than uh going to atmosphere it goes into this trunk line system that we have set up in the rafters where the co2 actually bubbles through the um 
bubbles through the water, goes up into this trunk line system, and goes to a second phone trap. And that's actually a smartphone trap. Um, so that's actually connected to the unit and is measuring oxygen um, from the fermentation as well as uh, like the temperature and the pressure um, that's coming through. So it's actually able to monitor whether or not there's gas infeed for um, the CC unit, the actual machine itself. And does foam ever make it to that second foam trap? It really shouldn't. I mean, it's we have almost a 20-foot vertical rise from the uh, first foam trap, so there really shouldn't be. There is a... But if it senses it, it or it's just a secondary um, defense, so that doesn't get to the unit, because that will... <laughs> foam getting to the unit will definitely destroy that thing. It's a series of fil- filter beds and compressors and um, air dryers and things like that. So... Um, after that foam trap, it goes into the unit. Uh, well, it's cooled down into the unit, so it's air dried, uh, similar to a standard, like an air compressor that you would have um, for you know any of your pneumatics. So we're drying the air or the CO two as it goes into the CC unit, um, where it then goes through some carbon filter beds, uh, and that's actually. A maintenance point so that's something that has to be changed out every 30 days um but so that's removing any potential off flavors so if you you know anything that's normally driven off during fermentation um those things you don't want to put back into your product uh and so that will then uh after it's been so after we have gone through the filtration step there it then condenses it down to i believe it it condenses it down so like basically is turning it into liquid so that it can then be captured into or can then be put into the doer the actual uh storage tank Um, okay so cc is producing liquefied co2 is that because you you need it to be liquefied in order to store it or is that because it's part of the purification process itself or both um, my understanding is that it is for the is purely for the storage yeah. Mm-hmm. phase. Yeah, I think we can store six. Uh, speak to how many how many pounds of CO two we can liquid CO two. Yeah, we currently have it hooked up to be able to store seven hundred and eighty pounds mm-hmm. at a given time. Okay. Um, and what which, what determines that the size of the of the the doer, which is the the doer is the next step. That's where you store the liquid liquefied right. CO two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So that, that doer is, we have a single 780 pound doer. Um, and so then after the doer, we have a, a vaporizer so that we can use it in gas form. Okay. Explain what a, a lot of people probably know what a doer is, but a lot of probably don't. So why don't you explain what exactly is a doer? Yeah. So a doer is, um, that's your, it's a holding tank or a, uh, storage for, it's a storage tank specifically for gases or, uh, volatile liquids. So like a lot of the time, um, you know, like liquid nitrogen is usually held in a door. So it's held under, under high pressure. Um, and so that it can maintain a gas in a liquid phase. Yeah. And then I think one thing that, that, was uh, it took a little while to wrap our head around when we were first considering this was 
what do all these units look like and where do they have to be? How big are they? Where, you know, how much space does it take up? Do they have to be near each other? And um, basically that the, the mobile foam trap is kind of looks just like a keg and it's on a, on wheels. And we have a couple of those and we just wheel it around to whichever um, tank is at high croisin. Yeah. And then the um, uh, smart foam trap is stationary. It looks the same, but it's just stationary. The CC unit is just looks like a big box, um, probably three feet by five feet by three feet. Um, and right behind that is the doer, which looks very much like the CO2 tanks that like you might have CO2 for your thing. legacy yeah. system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, um, the um, uh, vaporizer, the vapor man, they call it. It looks really strange. And it's, um, it's about five feet tall. And it's just a whole set of fins. It's like a tall thing that just has fins all around the outside. And um, so uh, all of those things we have collected up together and basically stuck in between tanks. So it's not taking up extra floor space really in our production area. Yeah, it's kind of sitting in um, the way we have it situated. Yeah, it's sitting in kind of this void between two rows of fermenters. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of in, in between the uh, back of the fermenters, the way we have it laid out. Yeah. Okay, so you get out of the door, you go through the vaporizer, which is something that I think most uh, brewers have probably seen in a lot of um, small breweries. Um, and then uh, and then that gets you to your, to your, to your back to, I assume you have some sort of bulk tank at that point. Uh, so no, that's actually running straight into our, um, so the, the doer itself acts as our bulk tank for this, mm-hmm. that runs straight back into our, um, CO2 lines for production and for, uh, the tap room. And so we're actually able to switch over. So like if we ever do have to have times of high demand or anything like that because with the sizing we have for storage and for the vaporizer there's only a certain amount of demand we're able to have off that for co2 usage um so if we ever have times of high demand or we're you know we haven't been producing co2 uh we were able to switch over back to the legacy system as well okay there are not a lot of breweries of your size that have attempted a project like this, but I bet there are a lot listening who'd like to hear how it went. So let's get into the things you do differently topic. Tell us what you've learned. Uh, on the production side, there's definitely um, there's definitely schedule planning that kind of goes into this for optimizing um, optimizing your actual CO two generation. Um, and this was, it's, it's definitely a growing pain because, um, you kind of have to front load all of your, you want to front load all of your fermentation so that you are producing CO2 throughout the week so that you're replenishing CO2 rather than trying to generate it over the weekend and then you use it up and then you have to try to, so there, there's definitely scheduling, um, it kind of goes around this if you're trying to really do it the best that you can really capture as much co2 as you can um and that's part of that is related to storage constraints 
Um, so if you had a bigger doer, that might be less of an issue. Correct. Yeah. yeah, if you're able to store more CO2, you'd be in a lot better shape. Or a second doer. We could just get another one. Yeah. <laughs> Which will be a plan someday. Yeah. Okay. What else? What else did you learn? Um, I mean, one thing that this kind of relates similarly, but uh, I mean, we have a isobaric bottling line. So we have one of those, we have a, um, so, you know, pressure bowl, all of, all of that. And so it operates pretty high pressure uh, in the three to five bar range. And so when we're running that, that has a pretty high draw. And so that, that can actually outrun the CC when it needs to, when it's at high demand. So that's one that we, um, that's another spot that we found some limitations of our specific setup, not necessarily. Right. So is the vaporizer the bottleneck in that scenario? Like you've got the liquefied CO2, you just can't vaporize it fast enough? Yeah, we're not able to supply enough CO2. Yeah, correct. Um, I think it does like 80 pounds. It, we, we would need probably another 50% more supply, I'm guessing. Okay. Another thing we learned is that, you know, for our particular setup, since we don't have 30 barrel fermenters, and if we sometimes do a 30 barrel batch in a 60 barrel fermenter, we can't collect from that because there's too much headspace. You want to speak to that, Mike? Yeah, um, because of all the extra headspace, it's not, there, we have more headspace within the tank than we do. Um, within the foam traps and everywhere else. So yeah, most of the CO, we don't, it's not driving enough pressure off. Um, you know, similarly to if you're pressurizing a full tank, it's a lot faster to pressurize a full tank than a half full tank. So um, similar concept, it's not driving off enough pressure um, during fermentation. And then we also saw a difference on the positive side, um, purging the bright tanks because of the high purity. Yeah, um, we definitely see a much more consistency um, as well with that. Um, but because we because of the consistent purity um, and low oxygen levels within this, we do see much faster bright tank purges. Um, I'd say we're probably cutting. We probably went down from three to two hours. Um, three and a half to two hours. So we, we were saving about an hour of time by doing that, which is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Can you recapture anything that comes off of that purge as well? Like, you know, until you get to the, the point that you want, like that there's going to be that phase where it's mixed. Can you recover any of that through the system? So you could hook it up to the system, but the amount of, the amount that you'd probably be recapturing would be, by the time you're recapturing it, you'd be very close to being done with your purge. So you would more than likely not be, um, at least if you're, unless you're rushing, you know, unless you're going in, not purging doing too much and you're yeah. wasting CO2, then yeah, you might be able to, but if you're doing it low and slow, you shouldn't be getting to that point until you're almost done. But you are recapturing CO2 from recently emptied tanks sometimes, right? Correct. We're able to get a couple pounds um, off of, like, mainly the bigger ones. It's most effective, but we're able to hook those up to the foam traps and uh, blow those down through the CC rather than to atmosphere. Um, and it does it does get a good little recapture on that, which is nice. Do you use compressed air to push it push the CO two out, or do you just let it depressurize? 
we just let it depressurize. Uh, but that is a good idea. I probably could just push. <laughs> I could push with uh, compressed air at that point too to help drive it out. So, um, but no, we're we're just depressurizing for now, uh, and that it, it gets a decent bit out, and um, which is nice when they go to do. We'll we'll blow it down overnight and CIP it the next morning. Well, because things are, we have the time to do that right now since we're not at max capacity. So yeah, cool. One other advantage that I forgot to mention earlier is we have this really cool emblem that we've made that says naturally carbonated with recaptured CO2. And since I'm also on the sales side in distribution, it's something that really does appeal to different retailers um, who are more focused on that. So it's it's been really nice to have that. Um, we put it on shelf tackers and that sort of thing. It's on our packaging. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and we we let our um, contract clients we give them the option to do that as well. Um, so. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, any, I think you've exhausted the stuff you've learned, but correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yes, I think so. Okay. okay cool. I, I guess the only thing I would say that when we first, um, you know, we were definitely one of the first, right, um, with this company, and so. We did have times, we, we were down for several months um, when something, and they were figuring out what wasn't working right. And um, so I think they determined that maybe there was a unit that, you know, came in that there was defective, you know, parts of the inside, and maybe they've changed the supply or changed something about that spec. Um, I think there was another, every once in a while, they'll say, hey, we're sending you this new part, or, you know, that they'll do just it's they'll just comp it for us they just come out and do it and um so we definitely helped them work through a few issues at the beginning um when you're one of the initial implementations of something but um it, since those things have been worked out now it's just working great so no problems <laughs> That was Julie Broadus and Mike Sutherland here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links, including Finley's Green Leap Forward Fund. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop,